0: Hello and welcome to a special Rewind episode of the Raise Your Game Show. I'm your host, Alan Stein Jr. If you're new to our show, each of the previous 12 seasons have had a different theme, a different format, and a different approach to unpacking and dissecting both individual and organizational performance. These Rewind episodes take a look back at some of my all-time favorite shows, in case you missed them the first time around, or in case you'd like to give them a second listen. I hope you enjoy, and more importantly, I hope this Rewind episode helps you raise your game.
1: Excuse me, everyone, if I can have your attention, please. You're probably wondering why we gathered you here.
0: Let's give them something to talk about. Let's give them something to talk about. Roll it. Roll it.
1: Welcome to the Raise Your Game Show, a podcast that unpacks and dissects the strategies and principles of high performance in sports and business. Here's your host, Alan Stein Jr.
0: In the first half of season two, I teamed up with two good friends to unpack their thoughts, perspectives, and the lessons they learned from six of the most popular signature stories I tell regularly in my keynotes, workshops, and trainings. The second half of season two will follow the exact same format, except this time we'll dissect and discuss six rarely told stories that I've only shared publicly on a few occasions. Now, please keep in mind these stories are very unrefined. They need to be workshopped and tweaked a lot before they're stage ready. But this is the first step of how I develop content. In this episode, I'm joined by my friend David DeWolf, the president and CEO of Three Pillar Global and the best-selling author of The Product Mindset. David is one of the most innovative and compassionate leaders I've ever met. David and I are going to unpack and unwind a story about the first and only time I ran a marathon and how the lesson I learned about not allowing negative self-talk to undermine you directly applies to business leadership. Let's take a listen as I share this story with David in studio for the very first time. In 2002, a couple years after graduating college, I signed up to run my first marathon. It had always been a bucket list item for me. Despite being a college basketball player, I knew very little about proper long-distance training. See, basketball is a short-duration, high-intensity sport, so the whole concept of pacing myself for running a long distance was foreign to me, and in hindsight, my preparation was grossly insufficient. At the start of any marathon, runners are staggered based on their predicted mile pace. When you have thousands of people running a race, you can't have everyone pushing their way to the starting line when the gun goes off. It's impractical, there's not enough room, and it would just be a mess. So when I arrived to line up that morning, I didn't have a real solid frame of reference for what my pace would be. I had run a five minute mile in college back when I was in the best shape of my life, but I wasn't completely delusional. I didn't think I could do that for a full 26 miles. So I ventured back to the eight to nine minute mile pace. And then I looked around and saw nothing but middle-aged soccer moms and guys in their 60s with gray hair. No way, I thought, these are old people. I don't belong here. So I inched my way up to a group that looked much closer to my age bracket and my level of seriousness and athleticness, which turned out to be the 6 minute per mile group at the sound of the starting gun I took off like a rocket with my adrenaline pumping I was flying at a 6 minute per mile pace and I was feeling great for the first 10 miles I felt unstoppable then slowly mile by mile I started to fade by mile 17 I hit a wall I felt my mind and my body shut down there was nothing I could do about it so I started to walk it was dejecting humiliating and humbling An hour previously, I was sprinting, and now I was walking. But this was the first time in my life that I remember negative self-talk completely taking over my mindset. I can't do this. I can't finish. I need to quit. I knew this wasn't a healthier, productive mindset, but this voice in my head was deafening and it was hard to block out. Every time I tried to muster up the strength to run again, it was like my legs were full of lead. They just wouldn't move. And then that negative inner voice would start all over again. As I spiraled in this negative self-talk, things just kept getting worse and worse. I ended up walking the last 10 miles, which I never in a million years would have thought I'd had to do. And as I crossed the finish line, while everyone else was smiling and celebrating, All I could think to myself was, I'll never do this again. This was the worst experience of my life. Almost 20 years later, with a little bit of maturity and perspective, I've been able to reconcile. I realized there's no shame in not being able to run, or in my case, sprint, an entire marathon. My disappointment came from the fact that I succumbed to negative inner self-talk, that I allowed my negative self-critic to get the best of me that day. And I won't let it happen again. We all have two voices inside, one that uplifts, supports, and empowers us, and one that criticizes, undermines, and demoralizes us. And the voice you choose to listen to when things get tough will make all of the difference in your life. The voice you choose to listen to will determine whether or not you're successful, happy, or fulfilled. So make sure you choose the right voice. All right, Mr. David, talk to me. What does that make you think?
1: word. Yes. Momentum. Ah, That's what comes to my mind, I love that word. When when we're in our minds, you know, typically that negative self-talk doesn't start to happen until there's a reason for it, right? Like we we have made a mistake. We have um, done something we're not proud of, whatever it is. And it builds momentum because the negative self-talk reinforces the negativity that we have experienced. And it becomes this downward spiral, right? Positive self-talk is the exact opposite right? And I think the trick is this mental toughness. When we talk about mental toughness, what is mental toughness? Right. To me, it's the ability to shift momentum in our brains. What did you say? I think the trick is this mental toughness. When we talk about mental toughness, what is mental toughness, right? To me, it's the ability to shift momentum in our brains. Oh, I love that. Right? And so uh, that's what comes to mind when you share that is the ability when you're on Mile 22 and for, you know, five miles, you've now been walking to be able to figure out how do I turn this experience? And even if I can't run, start to enjoy yes. the fact that, you know what, I'm on mile 22. Yes. David couldn't even get past, well, five, right? Right. <laughs> um, and to just soak that in and, and to be able to shift that that mentality and the mindset, because mindset matters so much. Like, oh. our minds are so powerful.
0: In everything that we do. And yeah. that little voice can control us. That's and, right. And that's why we got to make sure uh, we feed the one that we want to feed. That's right. You know, when, when I look back on my life, I think the biggest difference between the 44-year-old Alan and the 24-year-old Alan, this is something you and I have talked yeah. about before, is I used to be completely outcome-based. Yeah. And now I'm very processed base. And that was a perfect example. In my mind, Mm. I had an outcome of being able to sprint an entire marathon and finish in a certain time period. And as soon as that was not going to happen, then I just let everything else break down. I no longer enjoyed the process. I no longer thought that, hey, you know what? I just ran 17 miles. That's not too shabby. (laughs) And yeah, maybe I need to walk another mile or two. But- but maybe I can enjoy that process or right. this isn't going the way that I had envisioned. Right. So what can I do to pivot and still be able to make this something that I should be proud of and have fun doing.
1: And maybe even loving the experience of learning. Right? Yes. The absolutely. fact that you were running your very first marathon yeah. and you actually got to sprint through the first 17 miles, which I'm still amazed by, like I'm, yeah. I'm processing that. How did somebody do that? Yeah. Right. But then enjoy the experience of, of your first marathon and saying, you know what? I'm going to do this differently next time. And here's how as I go to the next play and next time around when I'm doing this, instead of thinking, oh, I'm never doing this again, it was miserable, thinking, oh, my God, how much better would I be next time around? Because I know I run out of steam at 17 miles, and so I need to pace myself so I can get through the whole thing. What did you say? As I go to the next play and next time around when I'm doing this, instead of thinking, oh, I'm never doing this again, it was miserable, thinking, oh, my God, how much better? better would I be next time around because yeah. I know I run out of steam at 17 miles. And so I need to pace myself so I can get through the whole thing. Absolutely. I think another thing that, that feeds
0: often the inner talk that we have is when we play the comparison game Ooh, and, and so here much. I am running. And I, I mean, you saw, as I s- described in the story, even at the very beginning, I'm playing the comparison game just based on appearance right. of where I should even be starting. Right. And, and I allowed at that time, a tremendous overconfidence for me to think that right. I was going to be a better runner you looked then,
1: more yeah. fit than the others next to you. You're like, oh, and I've got to inch myself up, right? Absolutely. And playing that
0: comparison game. And then certainly as you're you're walking and you're seeing people zipping by you to the mm-hmm. finish line, now you're playing the negative comparison game of, man, they're so much better than I am. Yeah. They're in better shape than I am. They're yeah. a better runner than I am. Yeah. And then when I got to the finish line, I was probably the only person out of tens of thousands that was pouting. I just finished <laughs> something that most people consider an amazing fitness accomplishment. And I was so angry at myself. I right. didn't get to enjoy the moment. And here I am. I think what fueled that fire is I'm looking at all of these other people and they're smiling and happy. And I'm thinking you didn't even run the marathon. Like you just walked the whole time and you're happy for that. Right. But that's me putting my judgment on them. Right. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that those folks were happy that they did something amazing because right. your time is irrelevant. Right. I mean, what's most important is that you set a goal you work on some type of process to achieve that goal, and then you make little pivots in and throughout the race and the preparation and even the days after. And that's when I look back and think, man, I sure could have used some 44-year-old maturity back when I was in my early 20s. Well, so
1: that's an interesting point because it it definitely hit me in that story. You talk about the 20-year gap, right? And how now you are a very reflective person. You take time to to think and you can see just in your storytelling, the things that you pick up is because you spend time in your head thinking and processing you and the life experiences you have, which is a very powerful thing. Thing. But I'm curious when, in this situation, right, you described it as one of the worst moments of your life. Yes. Right? How long did it take you to get over that? And what was the impetus for all of a sudden reframing this in your head? Oh, boy.
0: I mean, it took a long time because I allowed... And and that's why I loved that you started with the word momentum. Hmm. Because I always think of like an avalanche or a snowball, you know, that the snowball starts picking up steam. And that can be good for us or it can be bad for us. In fact, I mean, I dwelled in disappointment for weeks and months after that, beating myself up over the fact that, you know... Now, instead of having the humility to look back and go, you know what? Your training actually was pretty insufficient. Like, you didn't do... Don't don't put all of this on yourself on game. Game day, right. Just realized that you were rather misguided when you had a training program. And that's the first thing to learn from. Right. So I had already entered that race, setting myself up for failure because right. I wasn't properly prepared. So right. that's almost a, a side story yep. is how important planning and preparation is to being successful on any game day. Right. Um, but yeah, I allowed that to really eat at me yeah. for a long time until I just let it go. Yeah. And then I started thinking, like why would I even make a proclamation that I'll never do this again? Right. Like that just doesn't make any sense. Right. What does that solve and how does that help? And I think that goes back to some youthful stubbornness, yeah. uh some youthful pig-headedness sure. and and allowing that momentum in the negative way to keep Festering yep. and get bigger when yeah. I could have nipped it in the bud.
1: Yeah, I think those youthful um, immaturities is yeah, what I call them. That's exactly what are it some is. of the most deep rooted things that we have. We all yeah. have them, and we all hold on to them for so long. Yes. and and I think there there has to be something in there, and your processing that allowed you to finally get to that moment where you could let go of that. Yes, and um, those are really important things for us to all look in the mirror yeah. and reflect upon. Like, what is it that is holding me back? (laughs) What did you say? those are really important things for us to all look in the mirror and reflect upon Like, what is it that is holding me back Right, holding you back from ever running a marathon again this was a goal of yours you wanted to do it now you're not going to do it again just because you didn't do it perfectly the first time around right right? like how much is that destroying your ability to have a fulfilled life right yes And, and I think we can all we all have different areas in our lives but I think we can all step back and say man I'm holding on to this from a long time ago yes and how do I reset my mental momentum and how do I get it going in the right direction and and use it as a learning experience to get healthier and healthier. Absolutely.
0: Uh, In a previous episode that you and I recorded when we were talking about James Robinson from DeMatha and his maturity to be able to disassociate who he was with the outcome, yes. that was something I struggled with. Yeah. I looked at it as running a marathon is the outcome I want. Yep. If I can't do that, and when I couldn't do that, I'm a failure. Right. And that's literally the mindset I had. Not mm-hmm. I failed at what I tried to do, right. but yeah. I, Allen Stein Jr., am EMA an actual failure. failure. And that doesn't help anybody. At all. And, and I'll say this, most things I've done in my life, I've been fairly successful at. Like, I was a pretty good student. I was a pretty good athlete. Like, I had good friends. I mean, things of all... I didn't have a tremendous amount of adversity growing up. So I'm certainly not making it sound like not being able to sprint a marathon is a major adversity, but it's one of a handful of times at that point in my life that I didn't get what I want and that I didn't achieve what I set out to. So I didn't have very much experience dealing with that type of adversity. And now at 44, I've got plenty of it. You you know, know?
1: I, I would say that I've actually seen that over and over in my life where those that don't have that challenge in their life that are kind of naturally inclined to be successful at different things tend to struggle when they do hit that yes. adversity you know i think back one of my best friends uh in college still a great friend um he he literally was a genius i mean just brilliant and going through school he just excelled and excelled and excelled and you know voted the most likely to be successful at all sorts of things and been very successful in and of himself, but when people look at his career trajectory versus mine, everybody assumed we would have been swapped. Yeah. And I was never the straight A student. I was always the B student. Yeah. Right. Um, but I, I think if I look at the difference, right, one was he he can sit in front of Jeopardy and every single time answer the question before Alex Trebek gives the final answer, right? Every contestant. For me, I had to work hard and bounce back and never be the perfect one. And I think that's a very important mental trait, to be able to bounce back from adversity. What did you say? And I think that's a very important mental trait. to be able to bounce back from adversity yes
0: well what it does is now that i have some clarity and some hindsight it makes me realize that for the first 25 30 years of my life i played things rather safe
1: oh interesting that i that
0: i didn't i mean clearly i don't think anyone in life should be your goal should be to bat a thousand i think all of us should be in fact if you're batting a thousand you're probably taking things way too conservative and too safe so when i look back and thought man There haven't been many things that I've set out to do that I haven't been able to accomplish. Uh, That wasn't a good thing. That was actually a bad thing that I don't think I was pushing myself. And that's one thing that I think I've done in the past decade is I've gone out on more limbs and I've tried more things and certainly had some nice successes that felt great, but have had plenty of missteps and what we can call failures. But I'm okay with them because I go into it knowing, boy, this is gonna be a stretch. I'm gonna do the best that I'm capable of. I'm gonna prepare. And if things don't work out, I'm not gonna have a mindset of, well, I'm never doing that again. Right, that's such a self
1: defeating mindset. I think that's an applicable lesson for ourselves individually. I think it's also a really powerful leadership lesson. Yeah, um, because I see this in business today. Is we live in you know the everybody gets a trophy world now, right? All of our kids are growing up and just participation. You know, you're patted on the back you know. and it's led to something in business that I really struggle with, which is. Goal setting is about making sure I set a goal that I can crush. Yeah. That doesn't make us better. No. Right? I tell my team all the time, if we are being more successful than 75% of our time hitting goals, then we're not hitting aggressive enough goal. What did you say? If we are being more successful than 75% of our time hitting goals, then we're not hitting aggressive enough goals, Absolutely. right? We've got to set aspirational goals that stretch us. Now, they should be realistic. We should of believe course. we can get there, but get there with hard work yes. and a little bit of luck going our way, right? Yes. And those types of things. If, if we're really good at what we're doing, if we're improving the machine, if we are leading like we're supposed to be doing, we should be able to accomplish things that feel a little stretchy, yeah. right? And it should stretch us to grow because it's growth comes from being uncomfortable, yes. right? If I'm just setting a goal that all I have to do is set, show up on the soccer field and I get a trophy, right. that, that's not a goal that's going to help me become a better person, right? Yeah. And I, I think for leaders listening to your podcast, really thinking about that, of not just trying to make people happy that they've hit their goals, yes. but challenging them to live in the moment and to love coming up short a little bit. Yeah. Every now and then, and, and enjoying
0: that process—it's yeah. the pursuit that should be most fun—and it right. still goes back to learning to disassociate yourself with the outcome. That's right. Love and enjoy that process, uh, but also being on some level—and this is what I've learned as of late—to kind of be a spectator to my own emotions. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing wrong that at mile 17, I just take a deep breath and go, "Okay, I'm disappointed right now. Yeah. I wish that I was still running." but I'm not. Yep. And I have to learn how to be okay with that disappointment. And now yep. I have two choices. There is that proverbial fork in the road. That's I sorry. can wallow in self-pity and negative self-talk and beat myself up over the fact that I'm walking, or I can kind of smile and say, "Okay, what else can I do from this point moving forward?" Yes. You know, can I just run or jog the next 100 yards and then walk the rest of the mile? Like, what can I do to actually disassociate the fact that I'm not getting what I want at this moment? And that's okay. And to me, that's what high performers do is they make the choice in the moment to focus on what's most important and then pick a solution or a resolution that will move them forward. And that's clearly not what I did that day.
1: You just teased out something that's really powerful, and I think we should all learn from, which is the difference between our mental state and our emotions. Uh, yes. One of the things you talked about that Demath story and James Robinson before, one of the things that we talked about is I loved the fact that for two hours after that game, he sat and cried on the court, yes. right? He allowed himself to feel. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't get in his head and say, you know what, tomorrow morning I'm showing up and I'm doing this a hundred times to make sure it doesn't happen again. But he separated the mental toughness from the raw emotion. And he allowed himself to feel right? And I think you're totally right. At at mile 17, there's nothing wrong with being disappointed in yourself. Yeah, There's nothing wrong with being sad that you couldn't do it. Yeah. That's different than getting in your head and causing 20 years of downward spiral of anguish, of anguish and just getting yourself tied up in knots. And we'd be really um, so much stronger in our roles as leaders if we were able to separate the, the heart and the mind more often and yes. allow ourselves to feel but still be mentally tough.
0: And then just look at ourselves objectively and say that it's 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 okay. Yeah. I'm allowed to be sad. I'm allowed to be disappointed. That's right. This is not going the way that I thought, but I still have a choice to make. And now I'm going to make a choice that's actually going to be productive and move me forward instead of making a choice that I know is going to send me in the other direction.
1: That's right. I couldn't agree more. We we have the ability as human beings, it's what makes us unique, to use our minds to overcome the natural emotions, right? And those emotions are good, right? They're baked into us for certain reasons, right? For um, survival, right? When we were cavemen, right? Great. But the mind is there to overcome them and allow us to move on. And I think that's such a powerful thing. For sure. So I guess the, the big lesson is run
0: your race. Don't compare yourself to anyone else. Plan and prepare to do the best that you're capable of. But when things don't go your way, which if you're setting appropriate goals, they won't always go your way. That's right. Pick a, a, a response that's going to move you forward. And it'll still be a, a victory in some sort, even if you're not getting the outcome that you wanted.
1: It's so cliche, but um, you know you never fail if you learn, right? You're either winning or learning. If you'd like for
0: me to share stories and lessons like this with your organization or at your next event, please visit alansteinjr.com to explore all of your options. And make sure you hit me up at alansteinjr on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with your thoughts and feedback. Well, that's it for now. I hope this has helped you raise your game.